The following is recorded for Marine Creek Church. If you have any questions, feel free to visit our website at www.marinecreekchurch.com. We hope you enjoy this message. And, uh, or they say, hey, you know, way to go with the Obamacare rollout. And I'm like, yeah, Rob Ford's the mayor of Toronto. <laughs> or they say, hey, Miley Cyrus, she was great on the award show. And I'm like, hey, Rob Ford's the mayor of Toronto, right? And I was telling the first service, anytime they say anything about Justin Bieber, I say, hey, first of all, he's Canadian. And second of all, Rob Ford is the mayor of Toronto. So if you're an American and you're in Canada and you're feeling picked on by culture, then just simply say those words, Rob Ford is the mayor of Toronto, and they'll walk away in defeat completely. Um, but enough about him. Uh, I really just wanted to uh, tell you a little bit about our work and how, how it works. I, I work for the International Mission Board, and they do a good job. They support us as far as... Uh, Rent, car, and salary. And so we have everything that we need. But in order to get as many missionaries on the field as they can, and they have 5,000 globally, um, they don't give people ministry budgets. And, um, and so the support that you've provided for us actually gives us a chance to do some special projects that I'll talk later about. Um, and I want to thank you. Our, our ministry would be radically different if it wasn't for your support. Not just the gifts, but also the, uh, the prayer, the support that we feel from you emotionally. You, you guys, I was telling the first service, are more like my home church than any other church that I know. And I wanted you to get to know us a little bit and, and our work. So I'll start with our family. Um, there's a picture of my family up there. And this is uh, in summertime, of course, but not really. This is uh, just a couple of months ago. And, um, um, of course, my name is Sebastian. This is my wife, Erin, my daughter, Sophia, who's four, and my son, who's two. Um, his name is Elias. And all four of us were born in four different countries. Uh, So we're kind of a multicultural family. I was born in Argentina myself. uh, And it's a neat story. About 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago, an American missionary went to Buenos Aires and talked to my great-grandfather about Jesus Christ. Just handed him a track. My great-grandfather couldn't read. Um, But he was really impressed about how how genuine this missionary was. So he became a Christian, and uh, he learned how to become a pastor. And so my great-grandfather... My grandfather and my father and myself were all ministers of the Lord. And that's because, I, you know, I'm the fruit of missionary work. So I believe in it. And I thank you for supporting it. Because who knows, you know, the next person that you reach might cause four generations to be in service with the Lord. So uh, that's kind of my story. And I, I moved to Texas, though, when I was a child. And um, grew up in Texas and in Florida and came back to Texas for seminary where I met my wife, Erin. She's a native Texan. She's from Fort Worth. And uh, like Matt was saying, Ron and Kay are her parents. Ron is the, is the beard. Yeah, he's the, he was grooming, he was hoping that Phil would stay out of the show, uh, Doug Dynasty, that would be permanently suspended so he could take over, but I heard he's back on the show. Um, but Ron and Kay introduced us to, to Matt and Heather, and of course we got Laura, and, and um, everything's really worked out in, in a God way, just like uh, Matt said. And so um, while we were here in Texas, though, my wife and I, we planted and pastored a church. Uh, we were part of this church plant, and I became the pastor of it for about six or seven years, and we, we just loved it. Uh, we were working with people coming out of prisons, and God was doing some good things, and we enjoyed it very much. But we also felt a call to serve God internationally. So we uh, prayed, and, and we uh, went to a conference, and we felt like God was calling us to Poland, of all places. And so Poland is where my daughter, Sophia, was born. Her Polish name is Zosia, if you want to call her that, or I don't, she's not here. She was here in the first service. Um, but she was born there. So, uh, And it was during that time while we were working with university students and, and, and doing a coffee house, we, we kind of realized that um, Toronto or Poland wasn't going to be our last stop. 
but we felt like God was preparing us for another place. So we talked to our bosses and we told our bosses, look, we really would like to go to a place with a lot of students that is very multicultural. And so they just opened up a map for us and, and, and said, you know, wherever you think God's leading you that we don't already have workers, go and just live for Jesus Christ there. And I was mentioning this to young people. I meet a lot of young people who think that um, they don't want to follow Jesus because it may limit some of the options that they have in the future. And it seems like they'd have less choices in life. And nothing could be further than the truth. When you serve God, it is an adventure. Um, my wife and I have been all over the world serving the Lord. Uh, I think we're up to like 25 countries or something. And um, the world has opened up to us since we started to just follow Jesus and, and trust him. So just to the young people who, who feel like following God kind of makes life boring, couldn't be further from the truth. Um, so we have this map of Europe that they're showing us and say, look, choose anywhere you want to go. Um, or where you feel God is, is asking you to go. And, and we actually picked a city off the map. It was, it was Toronto. Um, and before we even knew it was available, we, we discovered, wow, this is, a, this is an incredible city because we asked for a lot of students, and there are a quarter of a million students in Toronto. A quarter of a million, 250,000. Um, we asked, and it was also voted the country that was, or the city that was friendliest to young people to live in, in the world. Um, so it ticked that box perfect. And then the second thing is we asked for multicultural. And 52% of Toronto, more than 52% of Toronto, was born outside of Canada. And the United Nations called it the most multicultural city in the world. And uh, just to give you an example of that, I went to the campus I was going to be working on, put up a flyer saying we're going to do a Bible study, expected to draw some Christians, and we did. Um, 24 Christians came. They were from 21 different countries. And... 15 of those countries were ones that we consider close to the gospel. Um, so the opportunity in Toronto is amazing. Um, and the world is there. And I no longer work with one people group. I I've work with multiple people groups. And, and in fact, I really feel like, I didn't mention this in the earlier service, but I really feel like our people group is the future. Um, because future peoples, because every city is becoming more multicultural. So... Toronto is what Fort Worth will probably become in 40 or 50 years. So it kind of feels like we're working in the future, and we feel like it's a strategic place. And um, so we moved there, and my son was born there, Elias. Uh, he was born just a few months after we got there. So that's the four, Argentina, United States, Poland, and, and uh, Canada. And we're kind of hoping we don't move anywhere else because I don't want any more kids. So, um, yeah, it's kind of our way of marking our territory. But, uh, yeah. Um, but, you know, the other thing about... Uh, Toronto that really told us that we were in the right place is just how incredibly post-Christian it is. Um, Canada is a post-Christian place, but Toronto in particular is very post-Christian. And what I mean by post-Christian, I don't mean like it's a, you know, these immoral people that are running around like outlaws and smoking crack and threatening people on video like our mayor. Um, but, you know, it, it's actually a, a lot worse. Uh, I really think a post-Christian Toronto is a place where they are trying they're trying to craft a morality without God. And they're trying to be good very intentionally without God, without God's word. And um, in a lot of ways, the people of Toronto are very moral people. They have believe in justice causes. They believe in caring for the planet. I mean, they have a lot of values, a lot of morals. And the problem is that they're trying to build those things in spite of God. 
And uh, I think of it sometimes like a moral tower of Babel. You know, they're just building it up, this, this morality in it, and kind of in the face of God to build up their own name, see what we could do without God. And, uh, and, and that's a tough, tough place to work. It's an awesome place to live. It is a difficult place to, to minister. And I, I, I don't know how God's going to deal with the people of Toronto. I don't know if he'll have patience with them because they're trying to be good. And, and maybe he'll be merciful to them and, and give them a way to come back to him. Or, or maybe he'll smite them because they're trying to be good without him. Um, that's not for us to decide. We don't pray for judgment for the city. We ask for time. Time to influence the people around us. And so the way that we try to do that um, is basically our whole strategy is to engage, gather, train. Um, that's really the heart of our work, just engaging, gathering, and training. It's, it's really the heart of missions work. It's the heart of church planning in, in reality. But we try to teach people to in, uh, creatively engage non-Christians around them with the gospel. We tell them to creatively gather people who are interested and then to train them to follow Jesus Christ, the ones who have responded. And so that's our in, entire strategy, is just engage, gather, and train. And we've been doing that for a bit. And we do it in a couple of different contexts. Um, one of the contexts that we do it in is on campus. I'm, I'm uh, the chaplain, the Christian chaplain for the University of Toronto, Scarborough. Um, and so University of Toronto is one of the top two schools in Canada. This year, it was ranked number one, beating out McGill from Montreal. And um, it's one of the top 15 schools in the world. It's, it's like you know, Canada's Harvard. And uh, I work on the Scarborough campus, so it's a place of influence. And, and I'm the Christian chaplain there alongside the atheist chaplain, the Muslim chaplain, the Hindu chaplain, the Jewish chaplain, the Aboriginal chaplain, the Baha'i chaplain, um, and also the Christian chaplains from the LGBTQ community. So we all work together on campus. And in fact, I'm, I'm the chairman of the chaplains, so I, I help direct that group. And that's tough because my job is to engage, gather, and train people for Jesus Christ. And, and so if you're asking how do I do that in that context, is we do it very carefully and very prayerfully um, because you can imagine with all those different groups floating around campus, it can be tough. But I'll give you examples of, of some things that we've done, some things that you've actually allowed us to do. So one of the things that's up there is a, uh, on the top left is a picture of a a prayer worship meeting that we had. We invited all the Christians on campus to, to come out, and then we challenged them to engage, gather, and train their campus. And, and you helped make that possible. Um, we also did an initiative called Spark Good, which is a, a five-week program where we put 15 people together, and we, we call it Positive Risk-Taking Community. And so they come together and ask this one question, What's a risk I can take today or this week that'll make me a better person or the world a better place? And so they come together, brainstorm what they could do to make themselves better or the world better, and they come back and share about it the next week. And we do that for five weeks. And we have Christians and non-Christians doing it together, and it's a really easy, natural way for Christians to share how their faith helps them take positive risks. And and then when we notice non-Christians responding to the gospel, if they are interested, then we immediately try to get into discipleship relationships with them. Um, we also use something called 16 Days Like Jesus, which Laura did, and it was like a 16-day experiential journey through Jesus' life where every day we were giving one thing that Jesus did, and we were asked to do it ourselves, and then just kind of reflect on how it made us feel. And it was based on the book of Mark, 16 chapters of Mark. There was one behavior per chapter. And so we, uh, we did that for... Um, uh, those 16 days, which is way too long, by the way. We're gonna, next time we're going to do like one week for Jesus because that was a, a little bit of a roller coaster ride for us. Um, 
But in that time, uh, we had 50 students on campus doing it. 15 of them were not Christians. And because one of the tasks was to invite other people to do it with us, we actually had 80 people doing it in nine different countries um, online. So it was really a lot of fun, and and we kind of guided them through that. And again, when people start responding to the gospel, we ask to get into discipleship relationships with them. Um, The last thing on there is how to read the Bible better. It's kind of fuzzy, but it's just we invited skeptics, the curious, and believers to just come learn how to read the Bible in its context. And I was telling the skeptics and the curious, I said, listen, if you're going to disagree with the Bible, at least disagree with what it's actually trying to say. And so we learned how to read the Bible in its context. We, uh, this is just a small hermeneutics class, and we had Muslim students, Jewish students, and even the president of the Atheist Club came and was a part of that. Um, and so again, when people start showing interest, we just try to get into discipleship relationships with them, and that's kind of this slide over here. It shows a, a little map that we've created that's um, our stages map, and it, it just kind of takes uh, people, students through um, these stages saying, you know, maybe you're curious, maybe you're a, a believer, maybe you're a disciple, you're a disciple maker. We ask them to self-identify. We say, look, the curious are people who, uh, who are hungry for Jesus, a believer is someone who's hungry and being fed. A disciple is someone who's feeding themselves. And a disciple maker is someone who feeds others. So we actually just get them going on this map. It's like a dashboard, and then we give them um, ways that they can advance through the stages. We say, wherever you are, we just want you to be in the next step, and we'll help you, help you get there. So right now, I'm, I'm personally uh, discipling 15 students, um, 15 believers, and about three or four non-Christians. And we're taking them through these stages, trying to teach them to just keep going in, in, in their faith. So um, all these things are things that you help make possible. Um, and I want to thank you for that. Uh, I've had a, a lot of flexibility on campus because of, of your support, and I've, I've been able to do a lot of neat things, and, um, and it's paying off. So I thank you for that. We also try to engage, gather, and train in the community. And this is something that my wife really leads out with. Um, we take the same philosophy, but we just do it with our friends, people that we're meeting. I don't think I would have any friends my age if it wasn't for my wife. She just finds these ladies with, with kids our age, and she brings them over and drags their husbands along, and we start talking, and we, we become friends. And, and we started a Bible study in our home um, with young parents who don't identify as Christians. And it's kind of like a parenting Bible study, and we're doing that now. Um, we also use some students to go into at-risk neighborhoods and tutor young children. And my wife leads out on that. And those, those tutoring sessions have become character camps. And those character camps become Bible studies. And we're hoping that the Bible studies become churches. But um, in the top right there, that's our character camp that we did. And every single one of those students, except for two, are either Muslim or Hindu. And we just had a virtues camp based on the Bible and told the parents what we were doing. And they, they let them come. Um, so we also got involved in a church plant that's right next to our home or in the neighboring community. And they're only six months old, but they've committed to start a church in our community and to use us as one of the foundational pieces for that. Um, And it's just amazing. Six months old, and they're already thinking about the next church plan. So um, all these things are possible, again, because of your support, not only financially, but just the emotional support, the prayer support that you give. Uh, And let me share with you a a verse that kind of guides our our whole ministry. It's in Colossians uh, chapter 4, verses 2 to to 6. This is... uh, It says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which 
I am in prison, which I exchanged Toronto. And but trust me, Toronto's not prison. It's great. It's like, but it's where I am because God asked me to be there, not because I want to be there. Um, so the reason I'm there is to look for those open doors. And then the next part, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak, that I may try in some way to make the mystery of the gospel clear to them. And then in, in verse 5, it says, and this is really important, 5 and 6 have just been very dear to us in our last seven years as missionaries. Um, it says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And um, we know that the answer to everybody's problems is Jesus, right? But if you just go around saying Jesus, Jesus, Jesus all day, I mean, people are going to tune you out. So there's a different way to have that conversation with each person. Um, Matt was reminding me of the, the student who came to me and said, listen, I think I've just discovered God through math. What does that mean? And I said, I guess you're good at math. I don't know. Like, um, but I, I didn't know how to answer him, but I prayed and asked God, show me how to lead this young, brilliant mind um, into a relationship with you. I, I talked to another atheist friend. Look, I've always objected to God intellectually, but in reality, the reason I'm not a Christian is because I've never felt God in my heart, and I've always asked him to reveal himself to me. So how do you answer that? How do you answer the transgendered student that I have that's going from male to female surgically and saying, how do I fit in with God? How does God view me? What's my future with God? How do you answer the the young believer who says that in his culture, he's not allowed to teach his parents anything, uh, but he wants to share the gospel with his parents. He wants them to believe him. He just doesn't know how to do it. See, there's these unique situations that we're facing, and we... We covet your prayers for wisdom in those situations, just like I know you do too. You have a lot of situations in your life that are very unique, and you need to know how to answer each person um, the way they need to hear about the gospel. And so I'll pray that for you as well. But this has been a verse that's guided us um, for a long time. And so uh, that's kind of our our ministry in a nutshell. And I wanted to spend the rest of the time that I have sharing with you um, some things that have been rattling around in my head uh, since the Christmas season started, some things that have influenced me as a missionary. And, and the Christmas story is a great, great story to look at when you're considering mission work or, or missionary work. And, and obviously, one of the big things is incarnation, that God left heaven to become one of us, to build a, a bridge back to him. And, you know, missionaries leave their homeland to go live with the people and become the word and flesh with them, hopefully. But really, in reality, I wanted to focus on a different aspect of the Christmas story, um, Probably a lot of you read Luke chapter 2 during Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, and you read about the story of Christ's birth, but really I want to talk about Luke chapter 1. And in Luke chapter 1, there's really a couple of neat things happening that I don't think are any coincidence. There's two announcements about these two miraculous births, and there's two different reactions, too. And so, you know, when you look at that, you see they're, they're right next to one another. There's got to be a reason that they're there, usually for comparison contrast. So here you've got these two announcements twice. Um, once to Zechariah, who's a, you know, an older priest who's walked with the Lord for a long time, a righteous man. Um, and his wife Elizabeth is older as well, and they're barren. They've never been able to have children. And Gabriel says to them, you're going to have a son. And the other one is this... Uh, kind of unremarkable teenage girl. She doesn't have much of a pedigree, and, and she's a virgin. She's engaged, but she's a virgin. And, and Gabriel goes up to her and says, you're also going to have a son. And um, what's interesting to me is, like, the, the different 
responses that you get, because both of them had reason not to believe. But it's kind of surprising when you read the story. Again, you, you know kind of what happens in the end. But if you're reading the story for the first time, it's kind of surprising that it's Zechariah that actually doesn't believe the angel. You know, if you go back and read in chapter 1, you know, Gabriel says, you're going to have a son. And Zechariah's like, how can it be? We're old. And, and Gabriel gets kind of mad. He says, listen, uh, because you've not believed this. I'm, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I hear these things, and I'm bringing them to you. And, and, and because you haven't believed it, you're going to be silent. You're not going to be able to share this with anybody around you until it comes to be. And he kind of rebukes uh, Zechariah in that moment. And then you've got you know, this, this teenage girl who's told basically the same news. Um, you're going to have a son. And, and she's kind of like, yeah, okay, let's, let's roll with that. And, uh, you know, I was telling the first service, like an agreeable teenager, that's a miracle in itself, right? Like someone should say, yeah, sure. Um, but she says, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let, let it be to me according to your word. And, and it's funny because you've got this couple that, you know, it's trying so hard, never could have a child. And you have this other couple not trying at all, and, and here comes, you know, a baby probably that they didn't even want at that moment. And, and it's surprising to me that Zechariah, this priest who had walked with God for such a long time, it, it's surprising that he didn't recognize this as a very normal thing that God does. God seems to take pleasure in doing the impossible it seems like he, he takes these situations and he highlights them to kind of uh, show his character, show his power. You know, there, there's this uh, theological term called ex nihilo, which in Latin means from nothing or out of nothing. And, it, and it's kind of related to the creation story. And, but we use it in terms of a lot of places because God seems to always be interested in doing something out of nothing because it builds his character in, in our eyes. It builds his reputation. Uh, starting with the universe, you know, God created the universe out of nothing. He created life out of lifelessness. He created, you know, uh, he brought out consciousness from, you know, simple mindless life. He, he just has this tendency to, uh, to bring something out of nothing. That's part of his way. You know, but you can also see that in after creation, you know, after the fall with Adam and Eve, after the flood, God's wanting to reintroduce himself to society, and through a covenant. He's looking for a covenant partner when he's looking for Abraham and Sarah, right? He's, he's establishing a covenant for them, and, it, and it's so odd that you, you could see this way again of, of him doing something out of nothing, that he'll choose an old, dried-out couple, over 100 years old, in an old, dried-out region, and say, out of you, I'm going to create this flourishing people. You know, that was very intentional that God chose that, you know, uh, but it's kind of an odd selection, don't you think? I was telling the first service, you know, I was watching Christmas Vacation, and uh, it's a tradition, right? We watch Christmas Vacation, and Chevy Chase is there on top of the turkey, carving it away, and, and what happens when he puts that knife in that turkey? It's like this dryness, and it just like shrivels up, and, and that's Sarah's womb, you know, basically, that's, that's her womb right there, that, this is who God is choosing to, to birth a nation, you know, and, and you think about it, he could have chosen anybody, he could have chosen a, a, a you know, a, 
a fertile couple in a very lush tropical land, you know? Or he could have picked a woman like uh, the, the Duggars. Remember, 19 kids in county. He could have picked a woman like that. Like, hey, you've got half a nation. I'm just going to build the other half, right? So he could have picked anybody that he wanted, um, you know, the, the kind of woman that the man sneezes and she's pregnant. You've you met couples like that before? Or, you know, in the kind of land where you just spit on the ground and something grows. I mean, he could have picked any setting, any context he wanted, but he seems to say, you know what? Old, dried-out couple, old, dried-out region, perfect. This is where I'm going to create a people that will just flourish. Why? Because he's building his name as the God with ex nihilo powers. And you can see parts of this in the Christmas story, too, because not only is there uh, this old, dried-out couple in Zechariah and Elizabeth, but there is also a very dry time spiritually. You see, the 400 years before Jesus was born is commonly referred to as the the 400 years of silence. And there was no prophet. And it had been generations. It had been 400 years since the people of God had seen God do or say anything new. And yeah, there were people that were faithful during that time, but it just seemed like God was kind of inactive during that time. And so this was a spiritually dry time. Generations had gone without really seeing God do or say anything new. And so it kind of makes sense that here's this, this, this priest, Zechariah, who's in the temple, and this angel says, this is what I'm going to do. And he's like, yeah, right. And he doesn't believe it. Uh, this is a spiritually dry time. And, and, and listen, there's so much symbolism going on here. Listen, I'm, I'm a biblical literalist. I believe the Bible literally. But I also enjoy the poetic parts of it where you see these two birth announcements right next to one another. And you've got this... Uh, old, dried-out couple in Zechariah and Elizabeth who had tried so hard to be fruitful, and they couldn't. And, and then the angel says, you will have a son, and he's going to point to Christ. And think about how that symbolizes the law in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, of how people were faithful to it, and so faithful to it, and, 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 and yet they couldn't really get the fruit of righteousness that they wanted. And the angel comes in and says, listen, we will have fruit. The law does have fruit. It will point to Christ. And then in, in, in Mary and Joseph, you have you know, this inexperienced couple. They had not done anything. And, and, and the angel says, I'm going to bring a savior out of your inexperience, out of your inactivity. And, um, and you think about the, 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 law of, I mean, the, the covenant of grace, how God brings salvation, not out of our activity, not out of our effort, but just out of his love. He brings out the Savior. So you've got these two things meeting, these, these two couples meeting, and it's two testaments meeting right there in, in Luke chapter 1. It's a beautiful story. You need to just really read in the rich text that's there. Don't just go for the, uh, you know, I, I, don't even, I know I don't have to admonish you, don't just go for the Santa Claus and the gifts, but don't just go for the simple uh, Christmas stories. Really look into it. It's so rich. It reveals so much about God. And what we know is that God builds his name by bringing life and hope out of lifeless and hopeless situations. God is just all about that. I'm going to say it one more time. God builds his name by bringing life and hope out of lifeless and hopeless situations. And and you can just imagine um, God saying this. You can imagine say, I am the God that fill in the blank. I am the God that brought the universe out of nothing. I'm the God that brought life out of lifelessness. I am the God that, that, that brought a people out of an old couple in a dried out region. 
I'm the God that brought water out of the rock, that brought manna out of the sky. I'm the God that gives babies to the barren. I am the God that brings a Savior out of a virgin. I'm the God that raises to life the body in the tomb. You see, this is really, really a part of God's MO, his modus operandi. I mean, this is really what he does. This is how he builds his name. He keeps demonstrating that I can do something out of nothing. I, I like to call this God's Texan side a little bit. You know, like I've, I've lived in Texas for a while. I know how it is. You know, you, you go up to any true Texan and you give them any story, and, and that Texan's going to say to you, that ain't nothing. You know, you say, hey, I, I, ran a, I ran a mile in four minutes. Well, that ain't nothing. I ran a mile and three minutes in my boots. And I was like, okay, great. Yeah, great. And there are that ain't nothing people. You know who I'm talking about. You've met these people before. And, and like anything you have to say to them, their message to you is that ain't nothing. Um, well, God, in a much sweeter spirit, he's an out of nothing God. He wants you to know that he does these things out of nothing. Ex nihilo power. I'll bring it forth because I want to bring it forth, not because... You did anything. The circumstances did anything. I'll make a universe out of nothing. No big deal. I'll bring a savior out of a virgin. No big deal. Um, God just wants us to know that he has this power and that he uses it all the time. And uh, I guess, you know, what I want to ask you is, do you believe that? Do you believe that the God that you serve is, is a, has ex nihilo power, that has out of nothing power? I mean, it's one thing to say, yeah, I believe the story. I believe the universe was brought out of nothing. I believe in virgin birth. I believe in all those old stories about God doing these great things. But do you believe that there is a God who can bring something out of nothing in your situation? What is your desert? What is your dried out situation? What is your lifeless, hopeless situation in your life? I don't know what it is. God doesn't gift me with that kind of discernment. But maybe for some of you, it's, it's a relationship you have. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe there's just this dried out sense that there is no life in this. I feel no hope in this, and I don't hear God in it. It's like I'm stuck in those 400 years of silence. Maybe that's you this morning. Or maybe it's something in your family. Maybe it's a relationship with a, a child or a parent or a sibling, and, and you just think this situation is hopeless. Can I tell you, God can bring something out of it. He can put life into lifeless situations. He can draw it out. Do you believe that? Or are you a little bit more like Zechariah? You've walked with God for a long time, and you've learned how to do the religious speak and double talk and and kind of give God excuses for not doing things, and, and pretty soon you're just in a state where you've talked yourself out of belief. Or are you like Mary, who had no reason to believe but just did? What is your situation? What is your barren situation? Is it your work? Is it your future? Is it your past? Uh, Is it your finances? Is it an addiction you struggle with where you just don't sense like there's any hope of freedom? Let me tell you, you have an ex nihilo God. You have a God with ex nihilo powers, the ability to bring something out of nothing. You need to remember that in those situations. You need to believe. And, and I'm, I kind of stand before you a little bit ashamed that I'm 38 years old. I've walked with the Lord for 20 plus years. And I'm just now starting to believe in that power. 
I mean, I always believed it in the past. I always believed in the stories, right? I always believed what he did back then, but I'm starting to live out some new stories with him. He's starting to show me that he has these ex nihilo powers. He has this ability to bring something out of nothing. I call them campus miracles. The fact that the department that tried to shut us down is the one that asked me to be the chairman of the chaplains. Or the, the, the residence center with the resident director that said, you can't do anything in our dorms because you're a religious group. Just the day before I came to Texas, uh, we met and he said, listen, I, I would like for you to go around and knock door to door to all of our students, tell them that you're a chaplain and ask them if they have anything they want to talk about as far as faith. Same guy. And, and both times, you know, I'm, I'm hearing these things and, and I'm just in disbelief. I'm, I'm in shock and, and I'm ashamed of that, actually. I'm ashamed that um, when God decided to do something cool, when God gave me a Luke one moment and said, look, this is what I'm going to start doing, that I was more like Zechariah than Mary. And I want to repent of that publicly. I'm starting to believe that there's a uh, God with ex nihilo powers in my life. And, um, and I hope you are too. Uh, listen, I don't know what your situation is. And it's not to say that if you just start believing that God can do something in that situation, that he's going to do it. it. It's not up to us in our faith. It's not up to the circumstances. It's up to God. Today could be your Luke one moment where he says, look, whatever situation that is that's dried up, that's barren, I'm going to do something great. Today could be that day. Or you could be in year two of 400 years of silence. I don't know. And so you ask, well, then why should I believe and I just tell you simply because it's the only sane way to live. You, you can't live with hopelessness. You can't live not believing. You can't keep making excuses for God. You have to believe that if God wanted to, he could come in and he can end this, start this, whatever you need. It's the only sane way to live. And it's a lot more fun. I've lived like Zechariah and I've lived like Mary. There's only one way that's really pleasing the Lord in one way that is really satisfying. That's to believe. So listen, I just want to take um, one second to pray for you. But maybe I'll ask you to do this because we're running short on time. I want you to do this later on today. There's a slide up here. And listen, if you want to do it now or if you want to do it in the, in the service, well, actually, go ahead take out your phones. Let's do this. I want to do this. There's some people in the first service did it. Take out your phones and, and log on to either Twitter or Facebook and just complete this sentence and, and hashtag it with ex nilo. And you can see some people who have done it in the first service already, and, and you could do it yourself. Mine was God can bring saving faith out of crippling doubt. And I hashtag that ex nilo, and that's for my friend Peter. It's okay. Some of you are kind of like, should I really be getting my phone out of church? Yes, you can. I want you to do this so I can read these and I can pray for you. I'll comment on them and say, look, I'm praying this for you. And the only thing I ask is make it something personal. Don't just make it, I believe that the Dallas Cowboys can beat the Eagles tonight and get us into the playoffs. Don't <laughs> Let me say, if that's what helps you believe in next Nilo God, let's pray for it, right? Yeah. But God can do great things in your barren situations, you have a God with that kind of power. Do you believe it? Let me pray for you. Thank you, God, for this day. Thank you for the chance to share your word. Thank you for the chance to share our life in Toronto. And thank you again, God, for the, uh, the opportunity to share how you've taught us 
about yourself that you can create all these things out of nothing. You don't need us. You're not scared of our circumstances. It's just through your power and your will and your love that you do these great things. Help us to believe that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Marine Creek Church is located in Fort Worth, Texas. If you have any questions, feel free to visit our website at www.marinecreekchurch.com. Thank you.